The Courage to Lead, Episode 70. You're listening to the IB4E Coaching Podcast. Brought to you by IB4E Coaching, business coaching for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business professionals. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com. Hey, Coach Harlan here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having a phenomenal week. Uh, aside from the heat, I'm having a great week, and uh, I'm excited to introduce you to my guest. Uh, please welcome Jim Muehlhausen. As a seasoned entrepreneur and founder of the Business Model Institute, Jim Muehlhausen is dedicated to creating profitable, top-notch companies through the innovation and study of successful business models. In his research, Jim discovered a lack of planning among retirement-age business owners as they transition from the C-suite and navigate how to sell their business for a fair price. His book, Half Retire, Keep Your Business, Ditch the Stress, provides a structured retirement plan for business owners that enables them to shift from working income to equity income by owning rather than working for their company. Jim has authored two books, um, three books now, uh, on best practices for business models, The 51 Fatal Business Errors and How to Avoid Them, and Business Models for Dummies, compiled through years of research and real-world lessons as a business owner and consultant. Jim, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks, Harlan. Yeah, no, this is awesome. Uh, definitely want to talk about your background, talk about your books. I'm interested in finding out more about the half-retire thing, because uh, I think that's uh, one of the programs I offer is Ditch uh, the Chaos. So Ditch the Stress, same thing. So love to learn more about that. Um, but before we get started, I have some questions for you. Uh, listeners will know these are the questions that I ask every one of my guests. They were made famous on the television show Inside the Actor Studio, where James Lipton asked these questions of his um, Hollywood guests, Hollywood movie stars, TV stars, and stage stars. And I figure if they're good enough for the Hollywood elite, they're certainly good enough for my guests. So, Jim, if you're ready, I've got 10 questions for you. Fire away. Question number one, what is your favorite word? My favorite word? Uh I like the word entrepreneur, right? We work with business owners who are very entrepreneurial. I love the word, word entrepreneur. Excellent. Um, what is your least favorite word? <sighs> Procrastination. <laughs> Excellent. What turns you on? You know, Talking business turns me on, you know, I, you know, sometimes you, as you get older, you know, your friends kind of fall into categories, right? And I find that a lot of my friends, even from college, you know, we end up talking business. You have friends that you talk about your dog and your kids and all yeah. that or football or whatever, but yep. I have a lot of friends and I'm a lucky guy because I get to talk business every day with a lot nice. of different people at a very high level. Uh, and uh, I think I've stumbled into the right career accidentally, but uh, I've always liked talking business ever since I was a kid. I pressured my dad into letting me lie on a job application so I could work before it was legal uh, to go work out in a hundred degree factory uh, wow. in the heat, in the heat treating room, because that's how much I wanted to be, you know, involved in the business community. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Question four, what turns you off? What turns me off is seeing people that aren't reaching their potential. Okay. What sound or noise do you love? I love to play pinball. It's a <laughs> collection of noises. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, what sound or noise do you hate? Well, being besides fingernails on a chalkboard. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. That's Probably Fingernails on a chalkboard. That is a big one. Absolutely. Number seven, what is your favorite curse word? Oh, I probably have many. You know, I was my first business when I was in the automotive business and I couldn't get anyone to do anything unless you added the F-bomb in front of it. So unfortunately, I used, to I used that word more than I should because it became a habit uh, of wanting to get things done and uh, give my crew a little push. There you go. Um, question eight, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I love psychology. You know, I would, I, I'm too pragmatic to, you know, I was an accounting major, right? And then you, that's almost a vocational school, right? You become, then you become an accountant. I went to law school, you become a lawyer, uh, ended up not doing either of those, but I love psychology and I find it fascinating. If I had a do-over, I probably would, uh, would major in that. I don't know what I would do with it by golly, but it would at least be fun. It would be fun. Uh, what profession would you not like to do? 
accounting or law. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And finally, Jim, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Okay. Let's let's end the let's end the uh, the uh, yeah. <laughs> uh with just a nice welcome. That would be awesome. Welcome. Yeah. Anything short of that would be <laughs> Yeah, problematic. All right. Well, Jim, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about how you got started, uh, your time at Meineke, um, the different awards you've won, your books, and uh, what do you think about leadership and courage, right? So we'll be back right after this. So stick with us. Imagine having a trusted group of CEOs at your disposal. Imagine having your very own peer advisory team who could work you through the problems and questions in your business before you had to make those difficult decisions. Imagine you had a group of advisors that had your back and met for the sole purpose of making you successful in your business. What would you be able to accomplish then? Well, you don't have to imagine anymore. You can have that and more when you join my Business Success Mastermind Group. Join my Business Success Mastermind Group today. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. All right, and I'm back with my guest, Jim Muehlhausen. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast, Jim. It's good to have you here. here. Um, So yeah, let's talk about your background. You have a very, and you even self-expressed, eclectic background. CPA, franchisee, attorney, business owner, consultant, uh, public speaker, university professor. You've done almost everything. I've, there's lots of things I haven't done, but, the, but, but you've done I've, quite done, a I've bit. done many different things over the years. So, so take all, me through all, it. How all you, business related, right? Yeah. Take me through it. How'd you get started? Oh, I just always had that entrepreneurial itch. I was very fortunate. I grew up with a family business that was pretty successful. I always thought I'd be in that business. And then they went and sold the company on me. Okay. Uh, so rather than uh, get a real job as an accountant, I had done some auditing over the summers and I, I really realized it wasn't for me. Got enough to know what it was. And it's like, I don't want to do that. But that's why I have a degree. And so what do you do? You stall. You go to law school. Uh, <laughs> after a semester of law school, I was like, boy, I want to do this less than I want to be an accountant. <laughs> uh, and so I started looking at franchises. Uh, I teamed up with a fraternity brother of mine. We pulled together what we had, which wasn't much. And we ended up buying a Meineke franchise because a good muffler shops makes what a McDonald's makes. If you do it right and you didn't need a lot to start when you could leverage it. So we did. And I, uh, I actually opened the first store on the first day of law school, year two of year three. So for two of the three years of law school, I was dumb enough to do both. Uh, We had an opportunity to acquire a store. Uh, I went to IU down in Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, had an opportunity to, to buy an existing store in Indianapolis, bought another one and, uh, you know, was doing well enough at that business that I never needed to practice law. You can accurately guess to the dollar how much money I have made as a lawyer. Wow. <laughs> and what, what drew you to Meineke? What was it about the Meineke model? Uh, it really was a, a combination of how much money do I have to have to start this? Versus how much can you make okay. if you do it? And I, I missed the really good window. It was a superb business from 1970 to 1985. It's a pretty good business from 1987 when I got in to 1991 when I got out. It's a pretty good business. Okay. Um, but I started to see trends that we were going to turn into a general repair shop where you needed different types of mechanics. Yeah. And the exhaust business was going to go away. I saw it coming pretty early. And I was like, I think we'd be better just to jump off this train than see where it goes. And so sold it, started a manufacturing business uh, and just kind of started from there. But I got involved in a peer group when I, when I ran a a automotive remanufacturing business, I got involved in a peer group for five years and I really caught the fever. You know, the Remington razor, I liked it so much. I bought the company. Well, I didn't buy the company. They're a very large company. Uh, I ended up just going into that business and it turned into our CEO focus business. And then from there, I started you know, seeing the half retire type problems that business owners were having yeah. uh, and started pursuing these other interests that are all related to small business ownership. Yeah. And that's really where your, your heart and mind is at, right? Is the entrepreneurship Absolutely. and helping businesses and everything like that. Um, so when did you write your first book? I wrote my first book. It was published in 2008. Don't ask me when I started. It was probably five years earlier. (laughs) And that's a 51 (laughs) fatal business errors. Uh Yeah. Excellent. 
Tell me about some of the errors. What, what do you see in businesses? Where do they make their biggest mistakes? Well, it's really 51 best practices, but nobody wants to read that book. So you cleverly, ah. you know, because so it, I'll, I'll tell you what I did. And it's just because I'm a business owner, just like the readers of the book. Each one is here's the, here's the common errors that I see people making. Here's a real life story. Some of them are me. <laughs> Some of them are me. Uh, you know, real life stories. And then uh, what do you do about it? Right. Because I hate reading a book that doesn't have a then what. There are a lot of those. Yeah. Yeah. None none of my books don't have a then what. They all have a definitive action plan of what should you do differently to realize the benefits of this concept. Uh, And so I wanted to do that with the with the 51 errors. Um, But I'll tell you the thing that drives me nuts about myself and every other business owner. And that is what I'm going to call indecisiveness. Mm. No one would call themselves indecisive, right? including me. However, if you'd like a list of the things that I thought were a pretty good idea that I've been sitting on for a couple of years, because I don't want to spend $50,000 on software and $50,000 to hire somebody, okay? I've got some million dollar ideas that basically I can't seem to get myself to take you know, meaningful action. Maybe I'm just chicken, right? Maybe I just don't want to stroke a hundred thousand dollar check to try. I've right. had a lot of successes. I've had stuff that should have worked that didn't. Yeah. You know, we've all had those. Absolutely. Uh, but I, I think the problem with that is I should either do it or not do it. I shouldn't be sitting on something, you know, good ideas go away. It's not as yeah. good an idea two years later. It's worse. Yeah. You know, put a big X through it and kill it. But the the best business owners that I have found make decisions faster than other people. And that is huge. Uh, As as leaders, you have to be able to make those decisions, right? And you can't wait for 100%. If you wait for 100% of all the information you need, all the things aligned that you need and stuff like that, you're going to miss those opportunities. You have to be able to look at it, have 65, 70% of the information and make a decision. We go or, or no go, right? Well, and you pivot, you know, you talk about courage and, you know, the things you need to do, but think about PayPal. What a great success story. I love Mm -hmm. PayPal. Great company. The original idea and the original uh, fundraise for it was money transfer between Palm Pilots. Right. That's just not that big of a market. It wasn't that good of an idea. It was interesting back then. I had a Palm Pilot myself, you know, Uh, money transfer between them. It probably was just too early and it wasn't broad enough. But they figured out, ooh, we had half this right, but the mm-hmm. other half was was not as good as it could be. They fix it and end up, you know, making a really great company. But if they would have waited for all the lights to be green, right, there would be no company. Exactly. No, and they say, you know, done is better than perfect, right? Get it out there, and and I like that whole, you know, rapid uh, application design. Put it out there, test it, tweak it, put it back out there, test it, tweak it. And until you get that, the right combination of everything. Um, so uh, Business Model Institute, when did that come in? That, you know, most of my books are happy accidents. I, I <laughs> was trying to think of, uh, you know, when, when did I think of this half-retired thing? And I actually found a church bulletin that I had scribbled on in 2013. You know, or they could half-retire. That's what I said. Or they could half-retire. Yeah. And I must have been thinking about a, a client and, you know, the, you know their issues. Uh, and uh, bored during the sermon or something, yeah. <laughs> doodle that. But the, the I do a presentation for all of my group members every summer, and then we go golf in the afternoon. Nice. And I promise them an original piece of content. And in probably 2009 or something, I came up, I was kind of on a business model kick. I had read a couple of books, mm-hmm. and I thought it was an interesting topic. And you, you know, I, here's what I, had, what I like about business models and what intrigues me about them. Have you ever seen a business owner, and let's just say that this person has an MBA, they work 60 hours a week, they're smart, they have lots of good things going on, and they struggle to make a hundred grand. Yeah. Yep. And you ever seen somebody else that has a, a high school degree or maybe doesn't have a high school degree, they don't have the education, they're really not that hard of a worker, uh, they aren't as smart as the other person, and they make a million bucks a year. Yeah. And you go, how does that happen? Right. Never watched Duck Dynasty. I use them as an example. <laughs> it's like they don't seem to work. Right. I work a lot harder than that. Yeah. They make a lot. They make like fifteen million dollars a year. Yeah. But they, I'll tell you what, they did much better than me. They started with a much better business model. 
And that's why, and that enabled them to do it. So my saying on the business model side is, you know, hard work applied to a mediocre business model just yields more hard work. Yeah. It doesn't yield more profit. Yeah. And I see a lot, I saw a lot of business owners working too hard for the results that they were getting. And so I started asking why, why is that the case? Why are they working so hard, but not getting the results that they deserve? And it's because their business model was either bad to start with, stale, Mm-hmm. All business models eventually go bad. Yeah. It seems that the beer business model has finally gone bad. I used to use that example as the one that never has gone bad. You have 500-year-old beer companies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they tweak, but they still brew beer, sell beer right. uh, as their core. Now they're struggling a little bit with all this sparkling water Yeah. or, t- or taste changing. <laughs> but most business models probably need a fairly big innovation every five years yeah. or else you're going to be doing this instead of this. Right. And most of the things in your business should be living documents, right? Your your strategic plan should not be a one and done. It's something you should look at on a quarterly basis, update as often as necessary. You talked about pivot. You have to be able to know what your strengths are and look at the market, you know, see what the trends are and, and make sure you're at the right point. A trend to me is like a wave. You got to catch that wave at the right time. You don't want to be too far out in front of it. You'll get cloppered. You don't want to be too far behind it. You'll never get the momentum. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff going on. So what what is it with business models that uh, people get wrong? The businesses get wrong. I think they don't. Well, I think they don't innovate. You know, okay. usually they'll start with a decent business model. I think, you know, I just read a piece of information that was very interesting. How many people do you think should be involved in a key decision in order to get the best result? It's actually studied. Hmm. by, you know, Harvard or Columbia or whatever. Yeah. Um, and the answer is six. I won't make you guess. Okay. That six people should be involved in a, de- in a decision, in vetting it, in sounding board, all of that. So how many people do you think are involved in the initial making of the business model? Hmm. How many it, decision makers? Maybe one or two. Uh, yeah, probably one, right? Yeah. Me, me too. I mean, maybe you talk about it with friends, but do they really change your direction? Doubtful, doubtful. So we're making these suboptimal decisions. Okay. And then we go throw our 20 years of our lives into a suboptimal decision because we're drinking a little bit too much of our own Kool-Aid and all business owners have egos. That is a good thing, not a bad thing. You couldn't do what we do without an ego, but that ego doesn't like to be told this isn't a hundred percent what it needs to be. It, it can be wounding or uh, self-destructive. It, it, it hurts that drive that we have to get it done. By the same token, if the model could be better, it would be, it's like sharpening the saw. You know, running ahead with a dull saw doesn't yield the results of taking the time to sharpen it. And in this case, it's sharpening of the business model. The other thing is, is innovation. For instance, I'm sure you're hearing about supply chain problems mm-hmm. and the price increases that are going along with those, you know, 10% in plastics. And they're talking about another 10% maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, pricing innovation is a great subset of business models. Mm-hmm. Any knucklehead can hold their price the same and have cost rise, but right. that is destructive to your business model. It ruins your ability to give raises, which means holding on to key people. It, it lessens your competition for talent. Uh, it, inhibit your ability to innovate and, and research and development. All these things are contingent and paid for by margin. Mm-hmm. If you allow your margin to erode, your business model is eroding. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. And so you, um, right now you're coaching and consulting with businesses on their business models. Is that, that one of the things you're doing? Sure. Awesome. Sure. What, yeah, uh, what type I, of companies do you work with? Provide the outside eyes. You know? Yeah. Well, which is huge, right? Uh, an extra pair of eyes that come in uh, as a consultant, you know, we'd come in not having any experience in this particular industry. I can walk in the door and start asking questions that maybe they've overlooked where they're not even looking at it because they're too deep into the weeds. I can come in and say, why do you do that? And they go, uh, I don't know. <laughs> that's the way we've always done it, which drives me crazy. That's the way we've always done it. And that's the way we continue to do it. It's like, if it's not serving you, don't do it. You know, like you said, a flawed business process, you know, executed at twice the speed is still a flawed business process. You're just getting there faster, right? Um, so what types of, of businesses do you work with now? 
most businesses that I work with are in the, the B2B space. I'd say it's at least 70, 75% you know, B2B businesses. And these are people, you know, on the half retire side, obviously they're not looking to grow as much as someone else might be looking to grow, yeah. but it's probably people that are stuck in some way. I'm, uh, I, I'm stuck. Um, you know, I, I just started working with a new client that is a high end home remodeler. Okay. And he realized I'm never going to sell this for enough. That makes any sense. He makes very good money and enjoys a nice life. Why would he take two years earnings just to stop doing it in his late fifties? He's, yeah. you know, he, he'd be bored, but he loves to golf. He wants to golf a little bit more. He wants to travel. He wants to enjoy the fruits of 30 years of hard labor. Yeah. And it gets, it gets harder to work like you're 45 when you're 65. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely. just physically impossible. And if you're 45, you're going, yeah, no, that won't be me. It will. Trust me. Will. <laughs> <laughs> just wait till you're there. You'll you just get don't there. have the energy that you had. And you, you, A, you need to slow down a little bit, but mentally you'd like to slow down. And whether it be enjoy your grandkids or travel or, uh, you know, take that trip around the world, yeah. wouldn't it be great to get that income from your business that you've earned, mm-hmm. but turn it more, think of it as an annuity rather than what we call hard earned income, meaning you stop showing up, the income stops. Right. Exactly. And I think, yeah, that's what a lot of businesses are looking at. So I'm definitely intrigued by the half retirement uh, concept. Um, Talk to me a little bit about that. Where'd you come up with the idea for half retire? Business owners that had this problem. You know, I always use the example of, you know, here, here's uh, someone that owns a business. They make 300 grand a year, you know, owning a small HVAC company, say but they still have to sell the big jobs or they still have to do some work every now and then. And if they take two weeks off, you can see it in the PL. Mm-hmm. You know, things go wrong, that frustrates them. So there's a saying, people don't sell businesses for money, they sell them because they're frustrated. Mm-hmm. And so he or she gets frustrated enough that they go, heck, I did it. I didn't want to own my Meineke's anymore and I just wanted to be done. Yeah. You know, so I sold them for mm-hmm. not enough. I did okay. but. I would have been better off to follow my own advice that I didn't know yet yeah. uh, and keep them. I'd, I'd have a lot more wealth if I would have kept them. Uh, someone else got that wealth, right? Got all my hard work and they got to extract extra wealth rather than me doing right. it. And, and so it basically was impossible to retire. I think there's two groups to half retirees. It is impossible to half retire financially. The numbers don't work. Why would I sell a business that gives me $300,000 a year for six or $700,000 after tax. And that may be a best case scenario. Right. Now, if you can go get a 10 multiple, good for you, but most can't. Most are going to get a three. three Take your earnings right. times three, then pay Uncle Sam, then pay the broker, then pay your advisors, and then see what's left. And then go try to figure out how to make five or 10% safely with that. And you go, why would I trade 300,000 for 50? Right. And then you go, I'm not going to do that. But but I don't want the chaos. I don't want the stress. And that's where we come in, that we've got a six-step system that will turn that more into an annuity, less of hard-earned income. And you know, it's work, but we've got a, pr- a proven process that has helped people do that. Nice. The other group of half retirees is I don't want to fully retire. I will be bored. I don't like mm-hmm. to play golf. Uh, you know, I like to travel, but not that much. I want to keep active. And it's very common you know, with the baby boomers and younger to want to enjoy some of the benefits of retirement, but not fully retire. Sure. Yeah. Go in a couple of days a week. If, if that, right. Keep an eye on things and stay out of trouble, right. It keeps you off the streets. <laughs> keeps you yep. busy, but businesses, you have to structure the business, right. So that you can, you know, have those leaders within the company that you can turn over the business to and then step back and kind of chairman of the board type thing and step back and let them run the business for you. Not all businesses are set up that way from the beginning. Uh, do you go in and help them put that structure together? Yeah. Almost none of them are set up that way from the beginning. <laughs> well, they don't think about it. Been, you know, they don't think about retirement companies that have the same problem that a five person company has. Sure. It's really, it, it's certainly the more people you can spread the work around. Um, but we, we have a saying, we tried actually not to use the word delegation mm-hmm. uh, at half retire because I think it's a trap. You know, step one, I decide I want to half retire. Two, I find mini me, right? Three, I delegate work to mini me. Step four, I'm half retired. No, 
never it's never worked it never is going to work it's more complicated than that but i think that we uh you know we view delegation as someone else is going to do the work not me it's it's not going to work for a variety of reasons yeah. and here's the biggest one I'll, I'll let a little insider tip here people usually won't hire a mini me just to oh well i'll have sally do the work she's a talented individual and i'll have her step into my shoes because how much does a talented person that's executive level cost? Yeah. Let's call it at least a hundred grand bear. Yep. Yep. So now my $300,000 income goes to $200,000 because I have to pay Sally. Yeah. And people don't want to do that. Mm. And so where our trick comes in, this is one of our best tricks is we expect the income to stay the same, even though you're working less. And, nice. and we do that by discovering what we call your Picasso work. And your Picasso work is that genius that you provide the business that takes very little time, but adds a ton of value. And if we retain that Picasso work, we can cut a lot of the other work without a significant economic impact to the business. Nice. And you can maintain your income without sat without sacrificing. Very cool. Good job. So how long working with the companies, uh, how long does it take to get this all set up for them? Is it something quick? Is it something that takes a few years? It depends. Uh, on all the things you said, right? Uh, you know, how much is working well without the owner? How much it could be a mess, right? Uh, how much staff do they have? We are going to distribute some of that owner's work. There's a methodology to do it. I mean, a lot of it is process-based, not people-based. Mm -hmm. You know, the solution is never as simple as throwing a body at it. Oh, here's Bob. I'm just going <laughs> to throw Bob at it. That does not work. No. Uh, it, it, it's harder than that is the reality. I wish it were that simple. It's not, yeah. but it can be done through a combination of people, process, and systems that, that are known to work, um, I would say a year is pretty common, that yeah. in a year you can make significant progress for, to where you look in the rearview mirror and you go, holy cow, I can't believe this happened to me. Right. But I've had people a month that have had miraculous results. Yeah. Well, uh, for a lot of businesses, any improvement is good, you know, but there are so many businesses out there that just are set up to where everything funnels through that that owner, their brain, they they make all the decisions, they they do all this. They can't walk away from the business unless they plan on leaving their brain there. And hopefully they're not, right? It's like selling a, a, a business where the business is some big machine, but you're going to take the machine away with you. What, what good is that then, right? Um, but they just don't set it up the right way. And a lot of businesses don't have those business processes in place. The small, mid-sized companies, they think processes are for the big guys. We just do things as they come in. We make kind of make it up as we go along, whatever happens, we do it. They need to get those processes in place. If you have the processes, the systems in place, it's easy then to assign those systems to somebody, right? Rather than, like I said, just kind of throwing warm bodies. Well, and frankly, it's lazy. And I, I and it's lazy for a reason. It is. It's just yeah. lazy. There's a better way to do it. We all know there's a better way to do it. So why don't people do it? It's not that they're lazy because all business owners that I've seen work very hard. Sure. So I, I can't say, but, but it, it isn't an optimal solution. And anybody that's read the e-myth knows it's not an optimal solution. So right. why do they do it? And I think business owners like a little bit of chaos. Yeah. I like, think we like to be busy. I think we're a little ADD by nature. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that we like variety. OK. Yeah. And so sitting down and, and making a system is something that is against the grain for most business owners. Yeah. And so they say things like, oh, well, you know, that's inflexible. Or I mean, where we struggle <laughs> getting, you know, a nice, good system that can really help a business owner is the two percent imperfection where yeah. it just won't work. And to me, you just make a catch-all and you know it's going to be suboptimal in those situations. But yeah. the other plan is to have no system that works 0% of the time, not yeah. 98. And that doesn't make any sense either. Yeah. And I think a lot of business owners too, uh, they need that significance. They need to feel important, right? Um, I've got guys that every phone call that comes in goes directly to their cell phone. So wherever they are, their cell phone rings and it makes them feel like, hey, I'm important to this and to have them to give that up without replacing it with something else to make them, you know, feel important, that uh, significance. Uh, that's tough. You have to, you know, find out what it is they're hanging on to, why they're resistant to letting go and see if you can swap something in the, in place for that, you know? 
And we yeah. analyze it by six factors. I mean, we, we make them keep a log. I mean, you know, they don't like yeah. it, right? But you go, well, what is that call? I mean, for instance, if it's your best customer that spends $2 million a year and they're upset and want to talk to the owner, please put that through. Yes. Yes. <laughs> please put that through because it's high impact. It can only be done. You know, it's a personal relationship. But these, maybe I'm just some kind of weirdo that breaks things down. But I look at something and a lot of people, we call it unbundling, that they mm-hmm. say, oh, there's this task. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's a big hairball of stuff right. that's all combined with you know factors and knowledge and all the stuff that you talked about. But if you untangle that hairball, what you can find is, is that some of it is delegable and some of it is not. But when you bundle it, it's all undelegable because mm-hmm. of the P. You know, if you've got something that's white with a little bit of red, that red's going to make it pink. Right. And so it's never going to be white because of the little bit of red. We got to get rid. We need to break that off and just say, hey, listen, you're never going to be able to delegate the important part of your 25 year relationships. Right. No one's you. No one's ever going to be you. That's part of your Picasso work. But does that mean answering every phone call? Right. No. Nope. There are absolutely things you can let go of. Absolutely. So uh, working at your time with Meineke, the other jobs that you had, and now, you know, in your consulting, your books and everything like that. Um, how many employees did you have working for you over the years? Oh, I had 50 at the manufacturing company. We okay. probably had 30 at the Meineke's. Um, you know, now I always joke we either have uh, less than a handful or a hundred. It depends on, you know, I mean, I have 150 licensees, uh-huh. you know, I have a lead generation team in the Philippines, but they, you know, I have so many contractors. I don't even yeah. have track. It's probably 50 contractors that we have, but yeah. uh, lots of contractors and not a lot of employees. I'm one of those guys that likes a dimmer switch, not a light switch. There you go. Exactly. Turn it up when you, you need you ever it. Ever have an experience where you find yourself spending a whole day finding work for somebody else to do. Yeah. Yeah. And you realize this is like the lowest, not high, whatever the opposite of highest and best use is, lowest and worst use of my time, keeping someone who's not the president of the company busy. And I just got so tired of that when I had a lot of employees that I'm like, I want a dimmer switch that if there's no work, our IT guy, you know, he's used to, he was in India for 15 years. He moved to Canada recently, but if he, we don't have anything for him to do, he makes 50 bucks that week. If I have 60 hours, I'm going to pay him a lot of money. Yeah. Well, and I think that's what keeps a lot of businesses, you know, uh, small. They they don't want to hire that many people because they're afraid to get that big. Because what happens if that work goes away? Well, that's that's on your plate, dude. <laughs> get out there, find that work, right? Well, in general, they don't like to fire people. As tough yeah. as business owners can be, in general, yeah. nobody likes likes getting rid of people or firing people. I mean, you see it in recessions. Uh, you know, cut deep and fast. Right. Is the conventional wisdom and it's correct. No one does it. Yeah. Yeah. Including not, me. Not comfortable. Uh, maybe, maybe I've learned. Maybe after sticking my hand on the stove five <laughs> times, maybe I've learned before <laughs> the next time. But the the ones that that win, you know, cut to I, I think I finally got through some employees lat or some uh, customers last time because I said in like 2008 or nine, right? The depths of the right. recession. Yeah. I said, okay, listen. This is not a razor's edge. There is no exact right number of employees. The exact right number of employees for you is 36.3. Not 36, not 37. You're not going to hit it exactly. So we're either going to have too many people or too few, right? And they said, you're right. Too many or too few. We're in the middle of this god-awful recession. Which do you think is the right answer? And they're like, too few. And I'm like, you're correct. Too many is wrong. Because I said, what happens if we have too few? And they're like, is there other, is there talent out there? Oh, yeah, there's people begging for jobs, right? And we go through it. And it's like, exactly. So once I made it black and white, one of my coaching tricks, black and white or gray, I call there it. Go. Uh, they're making it gray. I make it black and white. Either too many or too few, you pick. And like, too few. I'm like, exactly. So let's figure out how to get there. And now all of a sudden, they find three people that they could let go that when it really came down to it, they could do without, and they get from losing money to making money. Yeah. So we're just now coming out of the COVID pandemic. Did you see a lot more businesses going up for sale during this time, or have they kind of circled the wagons and stay where they are? You know, what, what the brokers are telling me is, is that, that A, there've been a lot of business transactions, even during COVID, 
but they all have uh, clauses in there about, uh, you know, return to normalcy. I mean, mm. I've got a client that makes consumer product that's a cleaning product and he's up a ton yeah. because of COVID. It's not even a disinfectant, but he, he's up a lot yeah. and he's made great money. You go, well, is that going to continue or are sales going to go back to what they were pre-COVID? Mm. And so if he were to sell his business, he'd have to put a clause in there that would you know, have some kind of uh, a reset factor, or it could be an increase. Yeah. People that sales are down, you know, but look at these great results we used to have. Uh, but what I'm understanding is, is that people that are doing well during COVID are making out very well selling their businesses. But there's been a lot of people that have put that on hold. You know, yeah. now is not the time to sell my business. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Um, so talk to me about the, the courage, you know, this is all about the courage to lead. What does it take to be a courageous leader? A lot of people are comfortable in that, uh, nine to five comfort zone where somebody else is making the decision. Somebody else is taking the stress, right? You just go in and collect your paycheck and everything like that. Um, doesn't sound like you, your background was entrepreneurial from an early age and stuff. Where did you find the courage to go out and decide you're going to do this on your own rather than working for somebody else? You know, I wish I could claim that I had this great amount of courage to do it, but I really didn't. You know, if you had to put me in chicken shit or courageous, you'd probably put me in the chicken shit one because think about it. I, I continued law school. I even took and passed the bar when I knew not only did I not want to do it, I shouldn't do it. It's just not my high, It's not what I'm good at. You know, I mean, I have a saying just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. And that is exactly what it was for me in law. I just shouldn't do it. Yeah. And, but I needed to dual track it in order to have the courage yeah. you know, to do it. And then I was doing well enough with the stores that I just kept doing it. And then, then it became full-time like, oh gosh, no, this was a fun hobby, but I don't know that I want to wear my polyester gym, you know, uniform every day yeah. for the next 20 years. Let's do something else. And I was wanting to get into manufacturing because my family business was uh, manufacturing springs. Okay. Uh, was the family business. So I was wanting to get into manufacturing since I was this tall. Yeah. But I know a lot of people that have gone to law school and uh, because they decided they didn't like law or something like that, they went to work for somebody else. They didn't want the hassle of, of owning their own business. You dove right into a franchise. Yeah, I did. And, 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 you know, I had a tough, I had a tough period, uh, you know, health wise. And uh, the, probably the most courageous thing that I ever did was a, a significant health issue and I had gone to work. I've only worked for another, for a company for one year and one day. Okay. It was a software company and, uh, you know, they treated me well, but the, the product just wasn't very good. Uh, mm -hmm. And they ended up killing the product. Uh, and, I, and I saw it and I said, okay, this isn't going to last forever. I'm having a hard time working for somebody else anyway. And I really had, you know, this great experience with peer groups. And I went to the guy that led my groups and, you know, kind of made a deal to, to do something. But I jumped off a cliff and quit that job at about the worst. I, I basically lost, canceled my health insurance wow. at a time when I knew I was going to need it the most, yeah. you know, and canceled my income. I had two little kids, I had two little kids. And I said, A, I just can't work for somebody else. It's not me. And here's what I have found. If people are struggling to do that, where they're saying, you know, I think number one, go to the business model Institute site. There's a scoring your business model section, and maybe somebody else needs to do it for you or with you because we drink our own Kool-Aid, but there's a way to score a business model pretty quickly. It's called the business model wheel and it'll score it based on hundred points. And if it doesn't score well, get it better. You know, that's a good reason not to take the nasty plunge if the business model isn't there. And, and to me, the biggest component of that wheel is unserved or underserved market. You know, we, I have a division called sales QB that is fractional sales management. And a lot of times I get asked, well, what kind of sales training program do you guys have? And I'm like, absolutely none. There's lots of good sales training programs out there. The world doesn't need another one. We have a niche all to ourselves in fractional sales management. That's what we do. You know, we coach, not train, and we have this great niche, and it's been very successful because we have this niche all to ourselves in this little segment that's underserved yeah. called fractional sales management. But the world doesn't need another Greek restaurant like the rest of them. The world yeah. doesn't need another dry cleaners without either a killer. What's the differentiator? 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes we get so excited or we want to apply our skill. You know, I'm a X, I'm an engineer. So I want to go create an engineering company. What's going to be unique about that? Right. Is it your connections? Do you have so much business built in that you can you know, do that and double your income? That's not bad, but maybe you can do better. What's unique about that engineering practice? What's unique about how you do business? What's unique about how you hire the people you bring on, the culture? The world doesn't need another engineering company like the rest of them. There's enough. Yeah. It's finding that differentiator. And that's that's tough. That is tough. Um, If I was to bump into any of your former employees and ask them what kind of leader you were, what do you think they'd say? What kind of leader are you? You know, I may tend to be too laissez-faire. Uh, I, you know, there's a reason that I do a lot of licensing and franchising. I got hooked on franchising when I was a Meineke because it taps the power of the motivated owner operator. Right. And when, and so they gave me a great, I mean, imagine a 22 year old, you know, I had to talk them into selling me a franchise. I'm not kidding. Now either he played me really well, but I was going to buy it. So it was the easiest sale he ever had, but he literally said, Whoa, 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 Whoa. I'm stroking a check. And he's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We need to make sure that, you know, you're not an idiot at 22 years old buying this franchise. It was the youngest franchisee they ever had. Wow. Uh, But they gave me a great system. I worked hard. I followed what they told me. And I used that motivated owner operator model. So I I, I believe in hiring right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe in uh, not hiring what I call plug and play employees. It's one of the more important points in the 51 Airs book. Stop hiring your competitors. Rejects is the yeah. name of that one. Yeah. Because what we all want again, and it's back to just being easy. We all want to push the easy button and what's easy hiring someone that already knows our software already knows our business. Boy, that is the most overrated thing. They know our industry or they know our business. I don't care. <laughs> it is. It's a trap. Yep. Please. I'm begging you let go of it. it, it it's, it's, just what gets you is your competitor's rejects. Why aren't they working at your competitor? Yeah, there's or, a reason they're looking for a job. <laughs> how valuable are great employees? I mean, right. when a great employee wants to quit me, I tackle them, chain them to their desk, and make them tell me what it's going to take to get them to stay. That's what I do. Yeah. And my point is, so if they're so great, how come they're talking to you about a job and they aren't chained to their desk like my people? Right. Right? Yeah. It's, it's funny that I was alluding to the client that's a new half-retire client. He has a great system. You know, they basically have a lot of project management doing a big remodel. He will not hire people from construction. Hmm. He's a smart guy. He will not hire people from construction because they got too many bad habits. They won't do it our way. Our way is unique. And he's very, he's expensive, you know, for a reason. They do good work. They don't make mistakes. He's like, I don't want to have to undo Right. Somebody else's way. I just want him to follow the system that we know works. And so he hires for culture. He yes. hires for attitude. He hires for trait. I should say traits, not skills. Yes. Because think perfect. about what people complain about, about employees. Yeah. They're not dependable. They, uh, they don't make decisions, right? They, they don't make good decisions or they don't. These are all traits. Yeah. You can teach them. What does Sam Walton say? I can teach you how to run a cash register. I can't teach you how to smile. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You've got knowledge, skills, and attributes, right? Or the attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowledge is a book learning, skills is applying that book learning. But that attitude, that's something you cannot, they either have it or they don't. If they have a good, strong attitude, you can teach them the skills. Hire them for the attitude. Like you said, look for the culture. Do they fit the culture? And if so, you can train them up. Right? Yeah. And just have the patience. Just yeah. have the patience to patience to do it. Yeah. But if, if, if you told everybody listening to this, Write down uh, three to five employees that, you know, you're dissatisfied with and why everything on there is going to be an attribute, not a, they just don't, uh, they don't follow the training that we gave them or, you know, they they don't follow. Well, and frankly, don't follow the system is an attribute, right? Mm -hmm. We have a system. They won't follow it. That's an attribute. Yeah. And usually they, they bring that in with them. They've learned that somewhere. Like I said, you have to kind of deprogram them or unprogram them and then reprogram them. And that, that takes time. Well, that's a tough one, right? It's always the good employee. Yeah. I, I was having this conversation last month with a client where you know, best person in you know this group of 30 won't follow the process for safety, which is a big deal at this company, yeah. right? So what do you do? You've got a crew leader that is important, that makes good money, that has helped grow the company, but won't kind of grow with the company. Mm. 
uh, as yeah. safety becomes a, a very important factor for winning big jobs. Yeah. You know, that's a tough one. Yeah. I've worked on cl uh, with clients before where they had somebody that just really dug in their heels and you have to take a step back and say, why, why are they this adamant about not doing this? And a lot of times they have insights that they hadn't shared. Nobody asked them and you, you realize, Hey, they're right. We need to change this, you know, but yeah, that's a tough one. So uh, like I said, you've, you've done almost everything, CPA, franchisee, uh, business owner, consultant, franchiser, public speaker, university professor, <laughs> book, author, speaker. Uh, what's next? What are you going to do next? Uh, you know, I, I always say I'm not going to write another book and I write one every five years. So uh, <laughs> I've got, I, I've got three years uh, before the window closes. So I don't even know, I don't even know what it would be, but uh, uh, I really enjoy the work that I do right now. And I don't see a massive deviation. I think, you know, sometimes people are like, oh my gosh, you've done all this different stuff. And to me, it's really not all that different, you know? Yeah. Sales QB grow, grew out of working with clients and seeing why do you have five salespeople and the inmates are running the asylum around here? Do you have any idea how much A, stress that's causing you and B, how much money it's costing you? You know, not having anything resembling sales management. And it's pretty common. It's not that common, but there's a lot of businesses that are there and it's their biggest issue. And the problem is there's no good solution to that. There's five bad ways to do it the inmates running the asylum is one wrong way. And so we came up with a, a solution to that problem. And then, you know, I, I take smart people like you and teach them how to do that business, you know, uh, pave the road, so to speak. Excellent. Very cool. So half retire, keep your business, ditch the stress. Love it. 51 fatal business errors and how to avoid them and business model for dummies. Very cool. Jim, this has been awesome. How can people get in touch with you? If they're looking for you, where, where can they find you online? What's your website? Halfretire.com is probably the best place to go. And if they want more information, there's a great blueprint that you can download right on, right on the homepage that will you know, run you through the six steps of the half-retire process and, and see. But if you're, you know, we've got a 39-year-old in the program that wants to surf more. You know, he makes a million dollars a year, has a great business, but he he wants that ditch the stress part, right? You don't, you don't need to be 55 or 60 in order to sure. enjoy the benefits of half retire. It's really about getting your business to work for you instead yes. of, you know, you, you being the chief job holder in charge. Right. Amen. But you can't wait till the last minute. You can't just wake up one morning and say, I think I want to retire now and then decide what you want to do. You have to start putting those plans in place now. Right. Yep. Awesome. All right. So halfretire.com. Um, it, your books, they're available where Amazon, are they available Amazon, on the website? Barnes and Noble. All the big spots. Perfect. All right. I will have all this information in the show notes. So people will know how to get in touch with you, how to get in touch uh, or order your books from you and stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to see, see what else you come up with the next book in line. Very cool. Any ideas on what the book is? It'll probably be sales QB related. If I yeah. had to take, if I had to take a stab, um, nice. You know, there, there's just so many problems that spin off from not necessarily, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, we're an owner managed sales team. I don't know if you've seen this, but what I've seen, you see people that say that, right? right you know, right. well, I, you know, I, hey, I'm, I'm salesy. I'm the owner. We only have four salespeople. It's not that hard to manage them. And you go, well, when was the last time you did one-on-one -on -one coaching with one of your salespeople, when was your last sales meeting or whatever? And I would say, if I put Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder and, and measured the amount of time that you spend actually being the sales manager in a year, I'll bet you it's 10 hours a year. And that doesn't qualify as being the sales manager you know, for the team because every business owner knows in the back of their mind that that is not their highest and best use. That being the sales manager is not the most important thing they need to do today. And so because of lack of time and talent resources, they just skip it. And, uh, you know, a fractional solution, and you've seen them, there's lots of them. You've got fractional IT and uh, PE, yep. when we, we use a PEO, that's fractional HR and yeah. fractional CFOs. It's the way it's going these days. Absolutely. So, yeah. um, Especially know, with everything being remote. Yeah, with everything being remote, there's a lot of people looking at the fractional thing, CFO is one of the big ones that they're doing. Um, I, you know, it kind of makes sense to me, but I don't know. Is that a good trend? Do you think? Is that a bad trend? Fractional? 
Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's good. I mean, I think it rides right along with this whole, you know, gig economy. You know, there, there's a lot of, I feel that corporate America, and I don't want to change topics too hard here, but uh, I, I, I see a trend and have seen a trend for probably 10 years that corporate America is devaluing high-priced sales talent. Mm-hmm. I, I talk to three, $400,000 caliber people every week that, you know, used to work in medical devices or drugs or whatever industry they were in. And these big companies have decided, and no one had a meeting, but what they've decided is, well, you know, it's really our brand that gets these things done. I mean, is it really Bob or Mary, you know, who leveraged their relationship and knew psychology and was, you know, just that rock star that $300,000 salespeople are, right? And they convince themselves they don't need those people, Hmm. that an ordinary, you know, that a a 30-year-old could do the same thing as a 55-year-old, despite 25 years more experience. Uh, And then that would save a lot of money. And... I think that that is a mistake. I think it is wrong. And I think it's fairly easy math. If you, if you had one rock star, which a lot of small businesses don't, right. if you had one rock star, or even think the owner, you, you ever had a deal where you say to yourself, I know that I am the only person that could have closed that deal? <laughs> and say, hey, right. Yeah. So you go, what's the lifetime value of that deal? Right. And the answer is a lot more than that person makes it in a whole year, probably. Yet they're getting rid of these people to save a hundred grand and they would close that marginal piece of business that was worth way more yeah. than a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah. It's a focus. So this is like a whole nother topic. Like you said, we could probably do a whole, whole podcast episode just on this. Um, <laughs> so we'll have to have you back again in the future. We'll talk uh, more about this stuff. Jim, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, this has been great. I will have all these notes in the show notes for everybody. Uh, so listeners, make sure, uh, hopefully you, you're taking notes because there's a lot of good takeaways from this. Um, if not, listen to the podcast episode again, and it's time to take notes um, and share this with your family, friends, and colleagues and stick around because there's always more coming. That's it for me. Coach Arlen saying so long for now. All right. Thanks, Arlen.